Well, praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue on this morning in the Gospel of John. We've been going at this for, I think, about four months, and we have a couple more months to go to get through it. We're going verse by verse. I like going verse by verse because you don't get to skip the hard stuff. You got to deal with it all. And uh, actually, today, we're going to have some of that hard stuff that we have to go through and talk about. But as we're coming into chapter 15, we're going to see that uh, Jesus is aware that his time is running short with his disciples. And because of this, he knew that he had to share with them so that they would have a proper understanding of their relationship to himself and to God and to other believers and even the world. So Jesus shares some very important relationships that he has between uh, particularly uh, today we're going to talk about how, how the disciples need to rightly relate to Jesus, and then they need to talk about how they should rightly relate to one another. How many of you know that there, there are specific ways that we're supposed to interact with another, relate to one another, how we're supposed to relate to Jesus? And then next week, Pastor Joseph will be ministering, and you're going to see how we're supposed to relate to the world. But here's the thing, when we, when we look at how we relate together, Jesus uses, how I many you know that, that the Bible is not really difficult to understand? Jesus almost always uses these simple parables to illustrate points, and today we're going to see him use this, this idea of vines and branches to describe our relationship not only to him, who is the vine, but to the Father, who is actually the vine dresser, to the branches, which are actually us, and then the world around us. And then as for our relationship to one another, we're going to find one of the greatest commandments that Jesus gives, and that's for us to love one another. But not just any old kind of love, but he said to love one another as he has loved us. And then finally, you're going to see that Jesus actually places an expectation upon his disciples. How many know that there are some commandments that we're supposed to follow? You know, we were talking yesterday um, in the means meeting about, you know, we look at certain people and it's not our job to determine if somebody is saved or not, but there, there should be some fruit in their life, some evidence in their life, because when you get saved, there are some expectations that are placed on us. And first and foremost, we're to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Amen. So without too much further ado, because we do have a lot of stuff to get through today, let's get started. John 15 Verses 1 and 2, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. If you've ever done any studying of the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll know about the I am statements that Jesus makes. And this is the final uh, of I am statement that Jesus makes, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus begins to use this analogy of a vine to try to help his disciples understand how they're supposed to relate to one another, how they're supposed to relate to him and to the Father. And we begin to understand the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples as we look at this analogy, that we are the branches in this analogy. And branches grow from the vine, which is who Jesus is. And then finally, the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one that tends the vine. 
And this would have been an analogy that would have been very easy for all the disciples to understand. You know, some of the analogies don't quite click as hard with us today because we don't live in an agrarian society. At least most of us aren't still farming and, and raising livestock and tending crops. But today, they would have understood exactly what was going on because that was the primary means of taking care of your family. And while most of us may not have seen a grapevine, but if you haven't, yes, if you haven't seen grapevines and how they, how they work and how they grow, you can actually go out to Sonoida. They actually have huge grape fields out in Sonoida because it's, it's wine country out there. They make wine with it. And, uh, but you can see what they look like. And, and the way that grapes are is the roots go into the ground and there's one massive vine and then it goes and it wraps itself around the, the lattice work that they put up and all these, these uh, branches come off of the main vine. And then those vines, those branches, produce fruit. And here's the thing is the, the grapevine is actually a prolific plant. It grows a little crazy, and it just keeps going. And every single vine, I'm sorry, every single, every single vine of, uh, in a grapevine grows tons of branches. And every single one of those branches, if it's healthy, if it's being taken care of, if it's doing what it's supposed to, is producing a lot of grapes. And this imagery of the vine that Jesus uses, it's actually a, a common imagery that's used about Israel. Israel was God's choice vine that he took care of. In Psalm 80, verse 8, it says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. You see, God wanted his choice vine to produce fruit. But all too often, the vine got messed up. The vine got a little bit corrupt. And instead of producing fruit, it either produced no fruit or the fruit that it was producing was essentially rotten. And this is where Jesus comes in because he is the true vine. So Jesus is sharing this picture that it would have been very easy for the disciples to understand. And, and truthfully, if, if, if you took some, some basic... Bi uh, biology or, or stuff in, in, in high school, you should understand how plants work a little bit. Is it biology? Is that the right class I'm thinking of? Huh? I think it's, I don't know, you guys know what I'm talking about. You guys dealt with plants in high school. Why are you guys asking me these questions? I don't know everything. Hallelujah. <laughs> Stephen, cut that out. We don't want her to have proof. She'll use it against me later. <laughs> but we see this analogy that, that we should all understand. You're not helping, Pastor Joseph. Just tone it down over there. Got to get back on track. Hallelujah. <laughs> so Jesus is sharing this picture, right? This picture of a grapevine that we should all understand. And, and Jesus is the true vine, right? Israel was what he was looking for before, but it wasn't doing what it was supposed to. So now Jesus is the true vine, and the Father is tending to it. And each and every one of us that have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we end up being one of the branches attached to the true vine. And we're going to see all throughout this chapter that, that God is desiring fruit from each and every one of us. And we're also going to see that there's consequences for not doing so. The scripture says here that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In other words, he cuts it off. 
Now, this isn't something we like to talk about. Remember, I said we're going to deal with some hard stuff today. We're going to go in more detail in a little bit. But this isn't stuff we like to talk about. But there, there is expectations that are placed on us as Christians. And here's the thing is, is that when you cut a branch off of the vine, has anybody ever grown something in your yard or you have a tree and you cut off the branch? What happens to the branch? It dies. Why? Because it's no longer connected to the source of life. Every branch that is cut off the vine withers and dies. But then he goes on to say, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. See, this is the other side of it. Most Christians don't like this either. Nobody wants to get pruned. You see, in gardening, pruning is a necessary process. What you're doing is you're removing the, the damaged bits, the, 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 the poison bit, or not the disease bits, anything that's not growing, anything that's not producing properly, any issue or problem with the plant, you want to cut that off. And what this actually does is it helps the plant to grow. It helps the plant to produce more fruit. Because anytime you remove damaged, non-productive, or structurally unsound stuff, it actually encourages the plant to grow more, to compensate for what was just removed. And the reason you do this is because if you do this properly, the plant will actually produce more fruit than it ever would have if you would have left that stuff on. And how many know the same is true for us? You see, God wants to prune things back in our lives because it allows us to be more fruitful. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been through some pruning that wasn't comfortable. But it was necessary. Amen. And that's what it says. Look, if you, if you're, if you are bearing fruit, he's going to prune it so you can bear even more fruit. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So remember, where he's talking, he's still using this analogy of the vine and the branch, and he gives this picture of, of the pruning process as actually God removing sin and its consequences from our lives. You see, that's what pruning looks in our lives. It's getting rid of all the dead, non-productive, damaged, gross stuff in our lives. You know, and, we, and, and there's the extreme examples, right? If before you were saved, you were getting drunk all the time, God wants to remove that from your life so that you can be more fruitful. Right? If you're out there sleeping around, God wants to remove that from your life so that you can be more fruitful. If anything sinful is happening in your life, God wants to remove it from your life because those things in your life will actually limit your ability to produce godly fruit. Amen? But it's not even just the sinful stuff. If you don't ever have time to, to, to spend time on the Word and read your Bible and not focus on God because you're so focused on sports stats, then that's a problem. There are some things that God wants to remove from your life so that you can be more productive, so that you can be more fruitful. And if you take a look at your own life and you're concerned with the amount of fruitfulness in your own life, Maybe, maybe take a step back and look at what's the junk that's getting in the way that God wants you to remove? What's the stuff that God wants to prune away, but you keep pushing him away and not letting him do so? So Jesus tells his disciples, already you're clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. 
You see, because the, the, the disciples, they've been hearing the gospel message from Jesus because of, their, because of his words. They've already put their faith in him. And because they had already accepted Jesus' message, they were already being pruned. Amen. And then he continues on in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So he continues on with this analogy. He says, listen, you guys have to abide in me and me in you. And this idea of abiding, another word for abiding is remaining in. And I mentioned it earlier, but a, a branch cut off from the vine that is separated from its source of life cannot live. It withers and dies. Without the source of life, it can no longer produce any fruit. If you were to go, and, and this, like I said, this is stuff that would be simple for the disciples to understand. If you were to have a, a grapevine growing, and you took one of the branches, and you cut it off and just threw it off to the side, you're not going to get any grapes off of that branch. You're not going to get any fruit from that branch. And I think this imparts two very important truths to us that we need to understand. One, we must be connected to the vine. He is the source of life. If we want to live and bear fruit, that is what we have to do. There's not an alternative. There's not another option. If you want to produce and bear fruit, you must be connected to the vine. And two, if we're not connected to the vine, he says here, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not connected to the vine, we are completely powerless. Apart from him... We can't do anything. So then the question remains. Well, that's all well and good, Pastor Wayne. I get what I in him, but what the heck does that mean? Does anybody know what that means? The good news is, is, is we get to read the word and find out. Amen. First, if you want to abide in him, you have to believe in him. John 6, 55-56 says, For my flesh is true blood, my blood is true drink, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now you'll remember as we went over this several months ago, probably a couple months ago, as we were going through these chapters, what the illustration here, this idea of eating and drinking him, was, was putting your trust in him, your faith in him. By eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we were actually believing in the atonement that he provided in his death and resurrection. In this case, to eat and to drink is to believe. So that's the step one, to abide in him, is to put your trust in him, is to believe in him. Second, it's to persevere or continue in that belief. 1 John 2, 24 through 25 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. His word has to continue abiding in us, just like us in him. And then third, as we're going to see later on today, as we get through the chapter, it means that we have to keep his commandments. John 15, 9 through 10, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide 
in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So in a nutshell, if we want to abide in Jesus, we need to believe in him without wavering and be obedient to his word. Amen. And then in verse 15, 6, he says, But if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The reality is, is that there is a steep penalty for not abiding in him. Jesus says that if anyone does not remain or abide in him, he will wither and die. And then these withered and dead branches being good for nothing are just thrown into the fire and burned. Now here's what I said. We've got to talk about the difficult stuff, right? Because how I many of these are tough verses if you read them for what they are? And there have been many interpretations of what this verse means. First, it could refer to believers who have been disconnected to Christ. In other words, they once believed, they were once connected to the vine, but now they no longer believe, they're no longer connected to the vine, so they were once saved, but now they're not. These are people that were connected and aren't anymore. Or, some have said it could refer to people who still believe they're still saved, but they're completely ineffective, and they aren't really good for anything. You know, this, maybe these are people that, you know, they, they tell everybody they're Christians, but if you look at their life, there's absolutely zero evidence for it. Or maybe it could refer to people who still believe, but they've just lost their rewards for some reason. So they're still saved, but they get nothing else, none of the other promises, none of the other benefits. Or the fourth option is maybe it could refer to people who profess to be Christians kind of like Judas, right? Professed, but was never really saved at all. It was all a show. Now these are the different options that people have made over the years, and I'm going to share with you what I lean towards. And here's the thing. There are some things that I'll stake my life on, right? Right? Like, I'm going to die that Jesus is the only... Like, I would die over it being Jesus is the only way to salvation, right? That's something that, I, that I'm, I'm firm on. There is no wavering. This is one of those things that I believe it, but I wouldn't give my life for it. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? So personally, I lean towards the first that I talked to. I, I, I believe that this is referring to people who were saved, but end up walking away. And here's why. The second and third one, where we talked about these are people that are still saved but have either lost a reward or they're just ineffective, they're just, you know, I don't know, barely saved. I don't know how you would want to refer to it. But the reason this doesn't track with me is because he's describing dead branches that have been gathered and thrown into the fire. If a branch is dead, it's no longer connected to the source of life. It's, it's actually being cut off and tossed in the fire. So the reason why it doesn't track to me is, is if they were still saved, if they were still connected to the source, there would at least be some life in them. And then for the last one, people like Judas that claim to be Christians but really aren't. You know, these would be people that are, are faking it for whatever reason. They're putting on a show and maybe they're taking advantage of people just trying to, to take their money or something like that. Or like Judas, he was going through the motions 
also trying to take <laughs> the money. And then uh, uh, this, these are the dead branches. But the reason why this doesn't track for me is because these people would have never been connected to the vine in the first place. Right, to be connected to Jesus, you have to, we talk about, to abide in Jesus, you have to believe in him. So the first one we talked about, these are people who were saved, but are no longer connected to the vine. They dry up and die. Now I know there's a lot of controversy and different ideas about this idea, once saved, always saved, and, and, and stuff, and, and there's a couple different ways to look at it. One is that, that if you were saved, and then, and then you, you fall away, people will say that you were, you were never really saved. It, it was just fake. You were going through the motions. Or some people will say that, you know, if, if you get saved and you put your trust in Jesus and you can do whatever you want the rest of your life and whatever happened in that moment, that, that salvation sticks, I guess. But I believe that just like you freely receive salvation, you can freely give it back. You can turn away. Now, I 100% believe that it can't be stolen from you. There is nothing that can steal your salvation. If you remain in him, if you abide in him, if you continue in the faith, then you are still saved. There's no two ways about it. But besides this one, there are multiple scriptures that say that we must remain in the faith. We must continue to believe, which is why I believe this. And I'm not going to go too much further in this. If you want to talk to me about it afterwards, like I said, I'd be more than happy to go, go through it with you. Um, but this is also not a, uh, a salvation issue. Whether you believe he's talking about ineffective Christians or people that have lost their salvation, it doesn't impact the steps to become saved. The important thing is here that no matter what Jesus is actually referring to, you don't want to be there. <laughs> All right? So what's the alternative to abide in him? That's, as long as you're up here, if you're abiding in him, sorry, the, from, the, from the last verse, as long as you are, are abiding in him and he in you, then this really doesn't impact you personally, amen? So that's the important thing, is that we abide in him and he in us. And then in verse 7, it says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. You see, for those of us that do continue in him, abide in Jesus, continue to believe. It says we can ask for whatever we wish, and it'll be done for us. I talked about this last week when, when Jesus said something similar, but for some reason, and I don't know what it is, but there are so many people in the Christian community today that seem to want to put limitations on what Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be yours. To me, I don't see any limitations. It says, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be yours. But I think so many of us limit what this must mean because we look at the experience in our life, and we see that it hasn't happened the way that this happened. I asked for something once, and I didn't get it, so I must be misunderstanding this. But I don't think that's what it is. I think too often we try to define our experience. I'm sorry, we try to define the Word of God by our experience instead of the reality. What we should be doing is defining our experience by the Word of God. If the Word of God says that, that if you abide in Him and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, then I think we need to be just crazy enough to believe what the Bible says. Amen? I think we need to believe in it. The only limitation 
to Jesus' words is later expressed in John in, in one of his later letters. In 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. Pretty much the same language, the same idea. Whatever we ask, he hears, and we know that we have it. What the one qualification is, is that if it's according to his will. But truthfully, the clarification in this verse as well. Because it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Listen, if you abide in him and he abides in you, how many know that you're going to begin to start thinking like he thinks? If you abide in him and he abides in in you, then your will is going to align with his will because you want what he wants. You're not going to ask for something that's outside of his will because that isn't what you want. Is that making sense? The limitation was, if you abide in him and he in you, then you're only going to be asking things according to his will. So to put some sort of arbitrary limitation on what Jesus is saying seems strange to me. Like I said, I think that we need to start just being crazy enough to trust the Bible and what it says. Amen? And then he goes on to say, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, when we bear fruit in our lives because we abide in him and he abides in us, two things happen. One, we prove to be the disciples of Jesus. A fruitful life, which is a life that is lived according to the measure and statute, stature that is Jesus Christ, that is a fruitful life. A fruitful life is one that manifests the gifts of the, or the, sorry, the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, a, a life that is producing fruits are going to have this type of fruit on it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when we live like this, when you have this fruit expressed in your life, then you're proving to be Jesus' disciples. Like I said, this is what we talked about in the men's meeting. We can't say for sure. I I can never judge another man's heart. That's for for God to do. If they have faith to be saved or not, that's, that's up to God to make that decision. But the reality is, is that if you're a Christian... There should be some evidence for it. We should see fruit in your life. Because the reality is is that when you get born again, a miracle takes place. You are fundamentally changed. You're no longer who you used to be. You have been made brand new. The dead man, the old man is dead and gone. You have the Spirit of Christ inside of you. You are brand new. And how many of you know that if you're completely changed, you should see that on the outside as well? Now, I know for, for myself, when I got born again, it was a slow burn. <laughs> there was some changes that happened, but it was over time. But then I know other people, they get born again, and their, their life changes completely. But the key is, is that you start to see fruit. You start to see change. You start to grow. See, for me, apparently, um, I was resistant to some of the pruning. So my fruit production ramped up. 
Some people do it the smart way and just let God get to work and their lives are completely changed. Don't be like me. Just let God do what he wants to do. (laughs) But the reality is, is that your life should be changed. It should look different. We live like this. We choose to be his disciples because it's evidence that we've placed our faith in him. Evidence that we are obedient to his word and evidence that he abides in us in us and him. And then finally, this glorifies God. What glorifies God? That you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. This glorifies God when we live that way. How many of you guys want to glorify God? Start, start living in such a way that you're producing fruit in your life. Amen. Verses 9 through 11, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. How many know that as believers, we should be motivated by the love of the Father and the Son? His love is actually what motivates us. And I don't know how you could respond in any other way to the love of Christ and what he did for us on the cross other than responding in love and obedience. That's why when we receive the offering, when I'm up here, you always hear me saying so many times, we don't do this because we're obligated or at some sort of duty. We do this because how could we do anything else but honor the one who gave everything for us? I don't know how to respond any other way. He gave so much for us. How can you respond in any other way than to be obedient to him? And here's the thing that we need to understand is that love and obedience are connected. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. The two are connected. The truth is, if we're being honest... When we live in disobedience, we're actually showing a lack of love. Don't get mad at me because I'm not the one that said it. John has said it multiple times in this gospel. that The two are connected. And Jesus set the example for us, right? He says, I've spoken these, uh, sorry, uh, uh, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. You see, Jesus abided in the love of the Father by keeping his commandments. And we're to do the same, imitating Jesus. And then in doing so, in return, we receive fullness of joy. You see, so many people in this world have this idea that living in submission to God, being obedient to God, is somehow going to lower the quality of their life. Somehow make their life worse. They're so deceived by the passing pleasures of sin that they don't realize that they don't really have any true joy. They have happiness from moment to moment. Temporary happiness, the passing pleasures of sin. But the problem is, is it never lasts. And you have to keep going after more and more and more. They have temporary happiness that is never fulfilling. And it's always completely determined by their circumstances. But the Christian who abides in Jesus and him in them, he has true joy that is full and complete. And how many of you know that the joy that Jesus gives you, that fullness of joy, has nothing to do with your circumstances? You can be having a bad day and still have joy. 
because of what he did in you, for you, who you are in him. None of those things change because life is kind of poopy at the moment. Because the reality is, is life's going to be garbage sometimes. We're going to go through hard spots. We're going to go through difficult times. And that's when you need to press into him and recognize that your joy has nothing to do with your circumstances, but everything to do with him. Amen. He says, listen, I have spoken this to you, reminding you to abide in his love and be obedient. And so he abides in you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And then in verse 12 through 14, he goes on, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The next thing Jesus does is commands us to love one another. But the problem is, is if we're not careful, we can see this love for one another as kind of some some weird feel-good idea. Right, We allow the definition of love that is so prevalent in today's society to creep into what the Bible means by love. And if we do that, then we can miss the point. Because you see, in today's culture, love is all messed up. First, we have this idea of love that's, that's so fleeting and temporary, like, man, I love pizza. Oh, I love me some ice cream. How I many know that's not the kind of love that it's talking about here? Really, what we're trying to say is we really it but that's not love and when it comes to loving people in today's society if if you listen to how it's described in the media it's really always fleeting and temporary right so often it's just a transaction as long as you're doing this for me then i will love you it's transactional there's always got to be something in place but as, as soon as you stop making me happy as soon as you stop doing what i want as soon as you stop then i'm out of here because that's not real love. Or to love someone, this is my, my most annoying version of love that I hear today, to love someone means you have to agree with them. Which is just the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my entire life. And the thing is, is, is this is one of those emperor has no clothes moments. Like if they would just step back, they would realize this. My son wants to play in, a, in, in the highway I'm going to say no. Huh? (laughs) I'm going to say no because I don't want him to get hurt. And he says, well, Dad, if you loved me, you'd let me go play in the street. You'd let me go play in the highway. Any parent knows that's not what love means. Yet for some reason in society, that's what they're trying to portray as love. Well, if you don't agree with me, then then you hate me. You don't love me. But when Jesus talks about love, he puts some qualifiers on it so that we can fully understand it. He says, you're to love one another as I love you. This means giving all. Most of us really aren't thrilled about, if we're being honest, we're not thrilled about the idea of of loving like that. You look at the person to the left or to your right, Or if you're just sitting by your spouse, look behind you. (laughs) And you're probably not, you know what, I love them, but I don't know if I would give up everything for them. But Jesus doesn't say love your spouse like that. He says love one another like that. 
says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, this commandment that I give you, love one another as I have loved you, this is the greatest kind of love, laying down your life for one another. How many know that's what Jesus does for us? That's the level of love that we're supposed to have for one another. And not even just in this church, this local church, we're talking the church at large, all disciples, all believers, we're supposed to love one another like that. And this isn't just a good idea. And Jesus is like, you know, it would really make me happy if you did this. This is a commandment. You want to know how I know this is a commandment? Because it says, this is my commandment. There's no confusion. This is how we're supposed to love one another. And he says, listen, if you do that, if you do what I command you to do, you are my friends. You know what the, the alternative to that is? That, that's a mutually exclusive thing, right? If you do this, if you obey my commandments and you're my friends, if you don't obey my commandments, what does that mean? That you're not his friend. That mutually exclusive. Some of you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. I didn't write this stuff. And, and I'm just reading exactly what it says. It me of twisting anything. That's just what it says. That's important. This means that we're to love one another like this, not fleeting or temporary with some sort of tedious qualification. We're to love one another so greatly that we'd be willing to give up our life for any other person in the body of Christ. Because that's who he's talking to, right? His disciples. If we're to call Jesus friend, this is the command that we're to follow. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see, Jesus considered these disciples his friends. You see, the contrast is, is that of a relationship with servants, a servant and their master. And typically, servants and their masters don't have the type of close, loving relationship that friends do. So as a result of this, Jesus trusted them with all the details. He didn't hold anything back. He told them what was going to happen. The gospel message was shared with them in full. And then he reminds them that, listen, you didn't choose me, but I chose and appointed you. This was in contrast to, to how it would have been back in those times. Matter of fact, it's in contrast to how we do it today, right? If you want to learn something, if you want to be trained in something, they don't typically come point you out and say, I'm going to teach you this. You go and find a teacher, right? That happened the same back then. For those that wanted to be trained, they went and found their teacher. But Jesus says, listen, I went to you. You didn't come to me. It was in contrast. There's a different relationship here. And he had a purpose for them, that they would go and bear fruit, and the fruit of their labor would abide. And then they would have the support of the Father in the mission, as for whatever they asked for, he would provide. And now they had a responsibility to share all that Jesus had shared with them with the rest of the world. This isn't for the, just the 12 disciples, folks. 
or 11 at this point. This is for all of us. Amen? And then finally, we'll end in verse 17. It says, These things I commend you so that you will love one another. You see, Jesus gave this lesson and then commanded them to love one another for a reason. The truth is, is that these particular people were being tasked with taking the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, to the rest of the world. But Jesus has already told them that the world hated him so that it was going to hate them as well. They're going to face some persecution, some opposition. And in order for them to be successful, they were going to need to trust one another. They were going to need to rely on one another, to support one another. They were going to have to resolve differences quickly. And they would need to put the interest of others above their own interests. They knew, Jesus knew that they would need one another. Because he knew how divisiveness and isolation could destroy the unity of the church. And how many know it's the same for us today? That truth still stands. That we need to love and support one another. I don't know if you you, uh, noticed this, and I didn't plan this just for this message, but it works out. So we have a, a gentleman back here who's been doing some pictures for us today. It's, we're trying to get our, our website updated and social media stuff. And uh, um, I was looking for a, a photographer. So I, I went over to Pastor Jeff from the Springs Church. And I was telling him about what was going on. I said, this is what I'm trying to do. He's like, you know what, let me talk to my guys. I bet you they'd help you out. And after uh, a little bit of talking and getting some scheduling down, Eric said, yeah, I would love to. I'll come. And and he's been doing that for us today. He's not a member of this church. But see, the thing is, is that churches like ours and Pastor Jeff in the Springs, we're not the same denomination. We actually have some theology, some doctrine that we believe completely different on. Not, Not the heaven or hell stuff, right? That's the stuff we stand on. But there are some secondary issues that we believe differently. But you know what? That doesn't, we don't allow that to create divisiveness between us. And we support and love one another. And that's why you see him here today, because he has the same idea that we're going to support the church. Not just my church, but the church. And I'm so blessed that they're here today. And I'm so blessed to call Pastor Jeff and, and, and those guys over there my friends. And that they're following the commandments of Jesus. Amen? Because this command still stands for us today. That we should love one another. Ensuring that persecution and divisiveness and bitterness doesn't impact the mission that has been given to us. Amen? And that mission is to make disciples of all nations.